This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. It's our first show after the trade deadline, so we have to break down a couple of the interesting things that happened. But first, very briefly, if you are going to Sabre Seminar this weekend in Boston, please do check out our friend and colleague, Travis Peterson, who is going to be giving a really cool presentation on what's next after sprint speed. It's going to be about burst, uh, which is kind of an acceleration metric that he's working on. It's very cool. Uh, so please do go check it out and make sure to tweet at him and tell him how cool you think it was. Today, we're going to talk about what in the world the Brewers are going to do with 75 different infielders after having traded for both Mike Moustakas and Jonathan Scope? We're going to try to figure out what kind of pitcher Chris Archer is because the results haven't really matched the reputation recently. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about Tommy Pham going to the Rays. There's no question about that. And then we're going to ask, did a new team just ascend to the top of the best defensive outfield in baseball rankings? But we're going to start with the Brewers who didn't really get any pitching, which was kind of surprising, and went and got uh, a pair of infielders, neither of whom really play shortstop, and now they've got too many infielders, and it's just really interesting to try to figure out how they're going to make this work. But I sort of think of this, you know, we're going to get to the Rays in a second, and obviously when you talk about the Rays, you have to think about the opener. That's sort of how I think about this for the Brewers. It's 2018. Baseball is weird. You can do weird things, and you can be innovative and try to make non-traditional things work. Yeah, I mean, it seems it certainly seems that that's kind of where the Brewers saw. They're like, okay, here's a way to improve our team that's unconventional, but we think that like the whole we've made ourselves better without really trading a lot. You know, they didn't give up a lot for Mustakas, who's a rental, uh, and then they for Scope, you know, he's not a rental, so they gave up a little more. But at the same time, you know. Mustakas will be gone uh, next year. Uh, there's someone else I think who's going to be in their in their in their infield mix is going to be a free agent. Well, uh, as far as the free agents go, no, I don't I don't think anybody other than Mustakas is a free agent because I'll have scope for next year, Shaw for next year, RCA for next year. Okay, Kester. well, I guess that's the, that's the point. If Mustakas is gone, then yeah, then then Shaw can go back to third base with scope at second, unless Keston Hira comes up. It th- next year is a whole other thing. But for right now, it's interesting. This is what their their infield depth chart looks like at the moment. At first base, it's Jesus Aguiar. It's been phenomenal, although not so much recently, and Eric Thames. But also Ryan Braun can play there, and also Shaw can play there. At second base, Scope, uh, but also Shaw, although Shaw had never played the position before a week ago. At shortstop, Arcia, who's a pretty good defender and an absolutely atrocious hitter. And at third base, Moustakis and Shaw, and even Aguiar. So first of all, they had to make a trade, right? Because Jonathan VR uh, has had two poor seasons in a row. Arcia has hit 196, 233, 249. Uh, That's not good. It's the worst line of any shortstop in baseball. He's been sent down to the minors twice this year. It is actually one of the 10 weakest lines from any shortstop in the last century with as much playing time as he has. Uh, You don't need StackCast to know. That's not good, but he's a good defender, and that's going to be important. And they've also got uh, Hernan Perez, who's a a multi-positional utility player, and they just sent down Tyler Saladino. So they obviously needed to make a move. We all thought maybe Dozier would fit there, Cabrera, or any of these guys. Instead, they got Moustakas, and they were going to push out a second, and then they got Scope, 
and now it's it's unclear. So here's what they've done so far. They've had four games with Mustakas. He started at third base every single game. They've had one game with Scope. He started at second base. And they've had uh, Arcia at short for three of those games and Perez playing a short yesterday. And I feel like when I was thinking about this, it's not really who is your starting infield going to be. It's like, which which loogie do I bring in at this point, right? It's, it's very much like a unit that can be mixed and matched uh, in many different ways. And it's kind of cool because I think as David Stearns, their GM, talked about, you can sort of hide some of these deficiencies. As we know, there are fewer balls in play now than there are at any time in baseball history. Uh, the Brewers have, I believe, a top 10 strikeout rate. So there's not a ton of balls in play there as well. And I thought this was pretty cool. They do a lot of shifting. And so we have a couple of ways to define the shift. Um, a shift, a traditional shift is three men on one side of second base, but we can also define a strategic shift, which is anytime there's somebody out of position. So basically the way I looked at this is how many, how often is a team out of their standard positioning, right? Standard meaning the four men at the four spots you expect them to be. For the average major league team, they're in a standard position 73% of the time. The Brewers are only 64% of the time. That's eighth lowest. It's about one third of the time. Uh, it's especially true at third base. Only the Astros play in the standard spot less often than the Brewers do, which is about half of the time. And at second base, the fourth fewest time. So they do a really good job of moving guys around. And maybe, you know, if you can get a few extra steps for some of these guys, you can kind of hide it, especially because it's almost impossible for the offensive upgrade to not outweigh the defensive downgrade, considering how low the bar was uh, for the middle infield offense. The thing you mentioned about third base really stands out to me, because as we know, David Stearns comes from the Astros. Um, and has that kind of like mindset uh, about you know forward thinking with defensive positioning and um, analytics in general. So to see that the Brewers and Astros are kind of at the lowest in terms of standard third base positioning sort of tells me that there's some that there's something in in what the Astros are thinking where basically they think that like there's so few balls hit to the standard third base positioning that third base is almost like a rover position where basically like you have a third baseman but there's no point in sort of anchoring him to within 10 feet of third base because so few balls are hit actually right there. And so they're, they're creatively using that that person to fill in other gaps on the diamond. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, it's not a one-to-one relationship that more shifting equals better defense because the Cubs have a really good defense and they barely shift at all. But what I thought was interesting about uh, Mustaka, so I've watched a lot of Brewers games the last couple of days and, you know, obviously super small sample size. He's looked really good at third base. And, you know, he's not considered to be a great defender, but he's looked pretty good the last couple of days. So I thought this was kind of fascinating. I looked up the biggest speed gainers. So we have sprint speed, which measures uh, top running speed in feet per second. Now, granted, you don't really need your top running speed at third base. It's a reaction position, but it can go to health, right? I looked at the biggest gainers from 2017 to 2018. Mike Moustakis is on top of the list. He has added more speed than anybody in baseball. The league average is 27 feet per second. He went from 24 to 25.7, so still below average. He's not a speed demon. But that's a gain of 1.7 uh, feet per second at his top speed, and that's the most in baseball. It's just ahead of Matt Kemp. And what's cool is if you look down this list, Stockus, Kemp, and you've got Dyson and Segura, Travis Shaw's there as well. You've got a bunch of guys who uh, have had health issues in the past. So Mustakas bled his knee two years ago. He's a year off of that. You know, Matt Kemp, we've talked a lot about his hamstring and his conditioning. We know that Jared Dyson had a groin issue. Uh, Segura had an ankle issue. Gregory Polanco's on this list. He had a hamstring problem. So it's kind of cool to me to see Mustakas maybe showing a little bit more athleticism and maybe they've got a little more confidence in him. But the guy who fascinates me the most here is Jonathan Scope. I love Jonathan Scope. I really have. Like, I've, I've been fascinated by him for years. Um, he's an absolute cannon and he has 
a lot of shortstop experience in the minors. Now, granted, this is like five years ago, but part of the reason he got shifted off shortstop is because the Orioles had J.J. Hardy and Manny Machado, so they didn't really need another shortstop. He actually started two games there last year. So the way I kind of look at this is you can really deploy uh, strategically placed infield alignments. So, for example, since a lot of these guys hit lefty already, you can say, well, if there's a righty pitcher, let's break out our extreme lefty platoon. You put uh, Eric Thames at first base, Shaw at second, Scope at short, Moustakas at third. That group has hit 320 on base, 509 slugging against righties this year. That's basically what Giancarlo Stanton has done. That's cool. You can do that. Lefty is pitching. Well, Aguiar at first base because he doesn't really have platoon splits, but Eric Thames really does. Uh, Scope at second, Perez at short, Moustakas at third. That's what they did last night against Rich Hill. And what's interesting about Perez is Perez has literally played every position this year except for catcher and pitcher. Oh, no, he's definitely played pitcher. Oh, he pitched. Okay, so he was the guy throwing those 48 mile an hour. Oh, there you go. Exactly. What am I talking about? (laughs) So he's played every position except for catcher. So he's an incredibly useful piece in this team because even last night they brought in Arcia to pinch run and then for Aguiar and then Arcia. Then Arcia comes in at short, Perez goes over to first. Right. Arcia is so, like a setup man at this point. <laughs> so it's like, exactly, you know, and I sort of like the idea of Craig Council, utility man in his own right, sort of like having this this uh, this player, Perez, that's sort of like he can like use, live out his vision of how he would have liked to be used when he was playing and just like put him in all over the diamond to sort of fill in and make creative substitutions. So they have this kind of flexibility because of Perez as well as Shaw, who they're going to play at probably three positions now. Um, and Ryan Braun, who can play first base and outfield, to really um, make some creative uh, substitutions. So even though they only have a four-man bench like most NL teams, they have a lot more flexibility. Don't forget, they have an elite outfield defense. Like, Lorenzo Cain is probably a borderline MVP candidate. Uh, Keon Broxton, when he's up, you know, we've always been fans of Keon Broxton, been phenomenal on defense. Uh, And then, obviously, they have Christian Yelich as well. So it's, it's a very good defense, and it was such a bad middle infield offensively that it's hard for me to see this not working out, even though it's completely unexpected and non-traditional. And you know that on this show, we love unexpected and non-traditional. Yeah, what's also interesting, I'll, I'll bring up in Brewers Talk, because I don't necessarily expect him to come in and be a workhorse this year, but Jimmy Nelson's throwing. He's actually throwing off speed pitches from a mound. Um, you could easily see him coming up in uh, September when rosters expand and maybe being a short man and working his way into a potential... Um, postseason role should they actually happen to make it that far but he's kind of an x-factor with an expanded roster where suddenly they throw jimmy nelson in the mix could be interesting speaking of the nl central how about those pittsburgh pirates sneaking in to get chris archer uh you should have seen us around the office on deadline day watching all of the moves fly in about an hour before the deadline and this one was a little uh surprising at least to me yes mike was the the wet blanket all day he was like oh archer's not gonna get traded (laughs) uh mike was uh was wrong with that take obviously um going to the Pirates for outfielder Austin Meadows, um, Tyler Glasnow. Glasnow, Glasnow, and a player to be named later who's supposed to be of "quote unquote" some significance, which leaves a little. Uh, I I guess Jung Ho Gong. I think uh, that's so interesting. Well, I, we're going to get to the Rays in a second. We got a lot of Rays <laughs> talk, but let's let's talk about Archer because the Pirates are "quote unquote" going for it with this trade, and they're betting on. The Chris Archer from 2015, basically. Pirates are currently 56 and 53. 
They are seven games out in the Central, but I think this is really more about the wild card where they are four games out. Uh, the Dodgers and Diamondbacks are tied both for the West and the first wild card. Then the Braves are half game out. Then the Rockies are one game out. And then the Pirates are four games out. So four games is not too much to overcome. But obviously, there's a lot of teams in the NL wild card mix. And the big question here, I think, is what kind of pitcher is Chris Archer? When he first came up with the Rays, uh, started throwing regularly in 2013, for the next couple of years, he looked like a legitimate ace. He actually had three somewhat similar years. He started to strike a ton of guys out. ERAs were about 320 every single year. Last couple of years, it's been a little different, though. Uh, still has the strikeouts. Home runs have been a bit of an issue. ERAs the last three years have been over four. This year, it's 431. There's always been kind of a question about, is he just a guy who's always going to underperform his peripherals, or is he actually a guy with the skills to be an ace? And what's really interesting to me is this fit specifically in Pittsburgh. Chris Archer relies on three pitches. He throws his four-seamer about half the time, his slider about half the time, and his, his change-up, you know, about 10% of the time. But his change-up is exclusively to lefty pitchers. He's literally thrown 10 change-ups to righties all year long. So against righties, he's a two-pitch pitcher, fastball and slider. That's kind of a weird mix for a starting pitcher. You don't see that very often without one of those pitches being extremely elite. Now, his slider has generally been extremely elite. But what's weird to me is that his fastball has been getting lit up this year. His fastball has allowed a 315 batting average and a 508 slugging percentage. Uh, that's not great, and he's going to a Pittsburgh team that throws the second most four-seam fastballs in baseball, and if you combine four-seam and two-seam and sinker, they throw the most fastballs in baseball. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if he's going to go there and they're going to say, throw the fastball more, or if they're going to try to change the way he throws it. He's still only a two-pitch pitcher. What's always been interesting to me about Chris Archer is, yeah, he gets the whiffs. He's really good at getting the strikeouts, but he gets hit really hard. If you look at the hard hit rankings, hard hit meaning 95 miles an hour of exit velocity or more, every single year, he's been kind of near the wrong end of the scale. In 2015, he was 153rd of 167 starting pitchers. 2016, 155 of 165. Last year, 160 of 172. This year, 104 of 130. It's always been, if you can make contact with Chris Archer, you can hit the ball really hard. And he's made up for that by piling up the strikeouts. I don't know how this fits in Pittsburgh. It's kind of a weird fit for me. Yeah, it's – I'm not sure how I feel about it. I kind of like the idea from like a narrative standpoint of the Pirates kind of making this kind of trade. And I know people compare – like, well, why don't they just keep Garrett Cole? Well, think about Garrett Cole. He's going to be a free agent, what, after ne next year? Uh, I believe he's got – yeah, this yeah. year next year. I yeah, think that's right. so they have one more year of team control on Archer. And he's cost-controlled because he's he signed that long-term deal. So even with this – he's going to be making less per year – than Cole's going to be making. $27.5 million for the next three seasons, not even including this year. So, like, to me, it's not exactly apples to apples, you know, because they get him for an extra year, and it's it's a very reasonable level level number. One thing I saw brought up that I thought was an interesting, but then we looked into it, is the idea that, oh, he's going to go from the AL East to the NL Central, so he's going to get out of this really tough division um, with a DH to a still good, but maybe not as strong division without the DH, but it doesn't actually, at least not this year, uh, bear itself out. I think in, uh, in terms of opponent, uh, OPS, he's 154th out of, uh, every pitcher who has thrown, um, yeah, he's, 50 innings. He's actually, I think near the league average in terms of quality of opponent faced it. it You'd think, oh, he's in the American League East. He's facing all this. It just hasn't worked out that way. Um, I don't know if that's maybe he hasn't made enough starts against those guys, whatever. That's kind of the narrative, and I don't think it's actually true. Moving from Tampa Bay to Pittsburgh, not that much of a difference in terms of ballpark effects, really. Um, yeah, I, I just I don't know what to make of it, really, because you know he's going to go there, and if you look at the way he throws his fastball, right? Like Tampa Bay, 
And you look at four seamers thrown in the upper third of the zone or above from starting pitchers. They do that a lot. They're the sixth most in baseball. They do it 52% of the time. So does Chris Archer. Well, in Pittsburgh, they don't do that. 28th most. I don't know. That's The whole thing for me is, are they going to try to change him? And then when people compare it to the Garrett Cole trade, I know that nobody liked the return. But to me, Garrett Cole was never going to succeed the way he has in Houston if he stayed in Pittsburgh. We talked about this all winter. He was going to get at Pittsburgh. He was going to throw more breaking pitches. I know it's a little more complicated than that, but that's what happened. I don't know that I have a ton of faith in Pittsburgh being the right place to improve Chris Archer. One thing that you know jumps out to me when I look at Chris Archer's profile, though, is for the first few years of his career, he was pretty steady, in ter- like almost like a metronome in terms of uh, batting average on balls in play. 2014, 296. 2015, 295. 2016, 296. So basically identical. And then last year, 325. And this year, 343, which is just really st- sticks out like a sore thumb. He's given up a lot of hard hit balls, as I said. And there's some concern. The thing is, he's been giving up hard hit balls every year. Well, I was going to say, though, there's some concern that he's about to get a defensive downgrade, which is not great for that. If you look at, uh, so this is just on ground balls, right? I compared expected batting average to actual batting average, which should tell you a little bit about the efficiency of a defense. The Rays were fifth best in baseball. They uh, slightly overperformed their expected batting average to their actual batting average. Last place in baseball, Pittsburgh Pirates. Their expected batting average was 241 on ground balls, and they've allowed a 271 average. That's a 30-point difference. That's not the trade-off you want to make now, to be fair. Pittsburgh's outfield defense has been spectacular, plus 13 and outs above average, where we have the Rays at really plus zero, only average. But, of course, Kevin Kiermaier has been hurt for half the year, so I wouldn't put too much stock into that. I don't know. It's not... I don't love it for Pittsburgh. I let me put it this way. I love that the Pirates are going for it. I love that they were the team that did something cool. That's awesome. I don't know if I love the fit. That's fair. Um, but I think that the, the other thing to keep in mind is that they actually still have a pretty good core of players, Pirates. So this is actually a trade. This is a trade for beyond this year. You know, next year they're still going to have Marte and Bell and Polanco. They still have they still have some players that they can you know run this group back and um, contend for a playoff spot. The one thing I do like about this trade is Chris Archer flies. Uh, to meet his team, he buys a Steelers jersey in the airport. So he's wearing that. And then Adam Berry, who is our Pirates.com beat reporter, said that at the press conference, Archer casually mentioned that his mom is a Steelers fan. So he's already a legend in Pittsburgh. It's going to work. Chris Archer has <laughs> always been very media savvy. Um, and the thing is, like, the, the Pirates fan base has been uh, somewhat fickle when they, <laughs> they were pretty disenchanted for a long time. You know, they had that terrible run without going to the postseason from 92 to... I guess 2014, I think it was it, 13. Maybe 13. But then as soon as, like, when they got good, the fan base, like, came back in full force. And then they've sort of been disenchanted because they feel like, oh, they're selling off. They're not trying to win. If Archer comes in, pitches well for two months, I feel like it will set his reputation. And, like, that could help kind of bring back some of that excitement. My only disappointment is that Chris Archer and Tommy Pham never get to share the Tampa Bay locker room because they're two of my favorite people in baseball I, I they are so honest and outspoken and i always get a kick out of pretty much everything they say tommy fan being traded to the rays maybe the most surprising deal of deadline day to me like yes chris archer had been rumored forever i didn't expect the pirates but sure you'd expect it to be moved tommy fam to the rays kind of came out of absolutely nowhere at least to me those are the best trades yeah the, the best trades were like we'd heard for like you know weeks okay archer's probably get traded pirates among the teams in the mix so that wasn't a surprise the best trades where you just get the press release where it's like boom Fam trade to the, the Rays. You're just like, what? So before we dig into this, I have a question. Why didn't the Cardinals just add prospects with Tommy Pham and get Chris Archer from the Rays instead of the guys they got? Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense? That is a great question. <laughs> I don't have an answer. 
Uh, but it's, it could, I mean, it takes two to tango, right? Maybe the the Rays saw it as a way that oh, we can we can bring in fan, but then also use Archer to get some other players to help us now, which they did. There, there are always things we're never going to know not being inside. But that was the first thing I thought of is like they probably could have just tried to trade for Chris Archer. Anyway, the Rays, who are always fascinating, pretty much remade half of their roster over the last week. Uh, they started out by trading Matt Andrees to the Diamondbacks, Evaldi to the Red Sox. Johnny Ventures back to the Braves, which I know we both loved the entire idea of that. Uh, Archer, as we said, Wilson Ramos to the Phillies, and then Tommy Pham to St. Louis for three prospects, none of whom I'd really ever heard of, but that's okay. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be quality players. And uh, now, you know, we we got a lot of entertainment over the fact that they had zero starting pitchers listed on the depth chart. Now, obviously, Blake Snell is still there. He's hurt. Um, Tyler Glass now made his first quote-unquote start yes. yesterday. Yanni Chirinos is uh, going to be a starter. I think Jacob Faria just got activated yesterday. Who cares about starters, really? Like, the Rays have proven that it just does not matter. Uh, I think you you had come up with, like, the most interesting Ryan Stanek fact ever. Like I, I mean, I don't know about ever, but you're maybe over something. Ryan Stanek, now, after three—he started three times last week— um, the 25th, the 28th, and the 31st of July. He now has 16 starts on the year. There is a very good chance he ends up leading the league in starts. Yes. There are like there are a bunch of pitchers tied with 23 starts, and he is gaining fast. And Chris Sale's on the DL now, so he's going to miss a couple starts. I don't I don't know who exactly all it's, the other. I mean, it's like Verlander, Manea. Uh, there's 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 like five or six guys, but like there's like what eight or nine weeks left in the season. But right? those guys are all starting at most twice a week. Where yeah. Stanek is is starting at least twice he, a week. He came in in the seventh inning last night, or, or sixth or seventh, and I was like, oh, this is weird. It's weird to see Ryan Stanek in the in the middle innings. So I think you know the the Rays are obviously always doing their own unique race thing. I actually really liked this trade for them. Even though in Glasnow and Austin Meadows, they're kind of a pair of post-type prospects a little bit. Like, I know Austin Meadows came up and had a ridiculous May. You know, 47 plate appearances, 426 on base, 795 slugging. And then after that, 288 on base, 336 slugging. Was sent back to the minors. Because he has like a like a 22% strikeout rate and a 5% he's, walk rate. And he's never shown that power in yeah. the minors. So there is certainly something to be said about, well, what kind of player is Austin Meadows going to be? But I love the idea that they have set themselves up for many years with a, a athletic youngish outfield. So like Kevin Kiermaier, who's phenomenal is a uh, signed through 2022 Austin Meadows, you know, six years of control left fam signed through 2021. That's three oh, no. really good outfield. Yeah. I mean, the fam's interesting. Obviously they, they sort of took on a distressed asset here to a certain degree. Cause I mean, 2017 fam was, Arguably the best player in the National Six League. Win player, like um, he had a down ballot MVP case. So, and then this year he started out strong and has not really been good for about two months now. Slugging below 400, just hasn't. OBP's been okay, just hasn't quite been the same player. And you know he's clashed with the Cardinals. You know that he was upset about that they that they kind of like you know he claims that they kind of lowballed him with a contract extension offer and then only renewed him for essentially the minimum for a, a third year player. So. There's always been a little bit of a little bit of uh, tension there, so it wasn't it wasn't shocking to me that they traded him, but they kind of they definitely sold low on him. Granted, he's thirty, so it's possible they know more, and they're like, this his value is only going to go with, down with a long uh, list of injuries in his past, including eye issues, including too. eye issues. Listen, he he won my heart like two years ago when uh, the Cardinals were playing Matt Adams in left field, and Dave Cameron wrote a fan graph, so why are they doing this? And Tommy Pham liked that tweet, which I thought was immensely entertaining. Uh, he did actually get off to a great start this year. In April, he hit three forty one. 453, 511, and you know hasn't been so great since then. That's if that's your first month, and now you've got a 332 on base and a 395 slugging. You can th- tell that things have gone a little bit downhill. 
expected weighted on base is still pretty similar to what it was last year. Uh, his hard hit rate is up. His batting average in balls in play is down by 68 points. Walks are down by three percentage points. Strikeouts are up. Obviously, that all matters. I'm really interested to see how this works out for him uh, in Tampa Bay. I mean, the, the Rays are... What, what did you say this morning? The Rays have a better record than the Angels. Which yeah, I only, I only pointed that out because they played yesterday. They're 55 and 53. Yeah, they're interesting. I mean, it's the, the Rays are endlessly fascinating. There's the trades they make. That, I mean, they... They operate like no one else. I mean, it's no secret. I'm not like breaking any news here, but it's fun to watch what they do to try and win at the margins and find different ways. Like the thing with the openers, um, it's it makes them by far the most interesting team in baseball to to follow. I think that's the right way to look at it. Like everybody, there's a lot of complaints. Oh, they should spend more. They should get more free agents, and that certainly makes sense. But it's also like one of the other issues we hear about baseball is that the 30 teams, the front offices are a little too homogenous. They all think the same way. It's so fun that there's one team out there doing weird stuff like this. It just makes baseball more interesting to me. Yeah, um, you know, the, and the on that on that note, uh, I'll bring up Brendan McKay, uh, Rays prospect, who was their number one draft pick last year, who may end up being sort of like the logical extreme of what they're trying to do. Brendan McKay was drafted as a two way player last year, um, and is playing very well in the minors. Certainly pitching very well, not hitting quite as well. Let me. Uh, He's across uh, three levels this year, uh, left-handed pitcher, 236 ERA, 87 strikeouts, and eight walks in 61 innings, which is pretty impressive. Um, batting line, not quite as good, 215, 387, 333, so basically walking a lot, 37 walks and 35 Ks and 186 plate appearances. But I, I will keep in mind that this guy slugged 659 as a junior at Louisville and hit four home runs in one game. Was like the number I think he was the number three pick in the draft last year, but it speaks to what the I mean the fact that the Rays drafted him and everyone was like, well, they're going to have to decide is he going to be a hitter or a pitcher, and they were like, nope, we don't have to do that. I mean, the Reds drafted Hunter Green. Granted, Hunter Green was not as good of a a hitting prospect as McKay is, so they basically were just like, oh, we're going to make a pitcher. He also throws 102 miles an hour. Um, I get it. I'm not saying it's a bad decision, but it was interesting. The Rays were like, no, we don't have to decide this. We're going to let him try both. And you see what they're doing at the major league level, and it makes you think that they're. There's no, they have no intention of making McKay choose a side. He's what a first baseman, first baseman. Yes. Okay. So one other thing we've seen the Rays do a couple times this year is put pitchers at positions. Like Sergio Romo played third base a couple weeks ago. That was so much fun to watch. Now, if you've got a guy who can actually play a position, just like take this to the logical extreme, he comes up and maybe he's switching between pitching and playing first base like every third hitter or whatever. Like I know that's weird. I know everybody's going to hate that. I love it cuz it's weird and they could do that cuz he's actually a first baseman. I've been waiting like 30 years for this to happen. There's like a, amongst Mets fans there's like this famous game in Mets lore in the 86 season where they got in a brawl with the Reds and they ran out of bench players cuz everyone got thrown out. So Roscoe Jesse Roscoe and Roger McDowell flip-flop between pitching and right field and Roscoe even made a catch on a fly ball. The Mets ended up winning extra innings. So it was like kind of this like legendary game. And as a kid, I was just kind of fascinated by it. I actually wrote a college essay about this game. That's <laughs> really? how, that's how... Well, I know what I'm Googling after this. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not public. I mean, like to get into college, like on a college application, like the question was like, give an example of creative leadership that you've encountered. So I wrote about that game. I, I, that's, I've yeah. learned something here today. I did not know um, that So I've been waiting 30 years for a team to do this regularly um, to sort of try and exploit these like I don't want to say loopholes, but like, opportun- I will say opportunities within the rules of baseball. And it is really fun to watch a team doing it. Before we get to our new favorite outfield, I want to ask, did you spend a lot of time watching the Royals-White Sox game last night? I know the answer is you did not, so that's okay. Brandon Moore hit 100.7 miles an hour last night. Brandon Moore, by the way, has been terrible this year. 11.40 ERA in 19 games. 
11 strikeouts, 13 walks. And I point this out because he hit 100.7 miles an hour. The fastest pitch by a Royal, I believe, in the entire StatCast uh, era back to 2015. Nobody noticed or really cared that much because hitting 100, it's just not that big a deal anymore. Like that used to be like, oh my God, this guy hit 100. Wow. Now it's like you have to be Jordan Hicks hitting 105 before you grade. Brandon Moore is the 26th different pitcher to hit triple digits this year. It's August 2nd. Uh, five years ago in 2013, 26 pitchers did it all year. 10 years ago, 2008, 18 pitchers did it all year. He's not even that good of a pitcher, and he's throwing 101. This is it's insane how much velocity there is in baseball. Yeah, my favorite example is Lou Trevino, um, who's like yes. become like the best reliever in baseball that no one's talking about. For the, for the Oakland A's, he's been phenomenal. Um, and then the day I was watching a Mets game, Tyler Bachelor, who you've definitely never heard of. That's not a real person. <laughs> he actually has a tattoo on his arm that says speed limit 100. I, I saw a tweet. I didn't independently verify this, so take that for what it's worth. Do you remember uh, Stetson Alley? Right. Yeah, they they, they got two way. He was a two way prospect. So he was like the number two overall pick. The the same like the year after Jameson Tyon or something. No, he was like he was Pirates. he was a guy that got a big. It was like before they changed the bonus rules. He wasn't okay. he wasn't a high pick, but he was a guy that like got a huge bonus but from Pittsburgh. Yes, from bonus, like because he was like a like he was a guy who could have played football or something. I forget exactly what it was, yeah. but they they gave him a big bonus. It was, it was like the same year they got Tyon or the year after they got Tyon or whatever. Like those two guys were supposed to be like the linchpins of their rotation for the future. Uh, it didn't really work out for him. I think he converted to outfield or something yeah. and then that didn't really work out and now he's back on the mound anyway the point of this is i saw a tweet where he's now pitching in triple a for the dodgers so he's at oklahoma city he's hitting 99 and 100 last night this is a guy who's like sort of pretended to be a pitcher every now and then it's ridiculous you can just find guys now and they all throw 100 a similar guy to him robert stock with the padres a yes. guy who's basically oh. out of baseball <laughs> who was like a big time catcher wasn't he? he was a big time catcher like high school was, player of the year when yeah. he was like 16 went to usc flamed out was basically out of baseball and is now like throwing 100 for the Padres. I, I just can't figure out why there's so many strikeouts in baseball. <laughs> I really can't. There was one other somewhat minor trade that happened uh, by the, over the deadline that I think got overlooked by a lot of people, unless you love following prospects, because if you're talking about post-type prospects, this is the one for you. The Atlanta Braves traded Lucas Sims, Matt Whistler, and Preston Tucker to the Cincinnati Reds for Adam Duvall. And the point of this is to talk about how Adam Duvall is a phenomenal defender and is going to make a very good outfield even better. But first... Those are some names. If you liked prospects in 2015, this is a big deal for you. None of those guys really worked out that well. Lucas Sims was a number uh, number 60 overall in baseball, MLB Pipeline, before 2014. He is a 596 ERA in the majors so far. Matt Whistler was number 69 before 2015. He is a 527 ERA in the majors. He was part of the uh, Craig Kimbrell-Melvin Upton deal. And then Preston Tucker came over from Houston a couple uh, months ago. The Reds now are stockpiling post-high pitching prospects. They have Sims, Whistler, Cody Reed, and Brandon Finnegan, who both came over in the Johnny Cueto deal, Michael Lorenzen, Robert Stevenson. If you liked reading Baseball America in like 2014, the Reds are your well, favorite team. The Reds and, and Stevenson were were drafted by them. It should be noted. Well, even still, like but, you know, none of them they haven't really broken out. Like no, but the point Lorenzen is, as opposed like it's supposed to getting them from other teams. Well, sure, Lorenzen is mostly notable for being a pitcher who can crush the ball. You know, <laughs> so that tells you a lot about that. Anyway, the point here is that um, the Braves we had them as our number three outfield defense in baseball in outs above average. They are number three with a plus seventeen ranking. A big part of that is. Uh, Ender and Ciarte is number one, obviously, at plus 15. Nick Marcakis was plus three. Acuna was plus three. Tucker was minus three, and now he's gone. And Adam Duvall is actually really good. He's a plus eight, uh, and this isn't just like a one-year thing. He's been really good every single year. And now, you know, you think about this outfield defense— 
this could be like, you know, I don't know. Do they rival the Brewers? Seems like it's pretty close to me. Yeah, Duvall's one of those guys who definitely like doesn't pass the eye test in terms of like you look at him, left fielder, like like in terms of his profile, like right-handed hitting left fielder who doesn't look that fast. You're like, oh, this guy's just like, this guy's a zero on defense. But year in and year out on the outs above average leaderboard, as long as we've had them, he's been maybe the best left fielder and like always among like, if not the best, among the best left fielders. And it's not just us. Like yeah. defensive run saved, like everybody kind of, uh, you're right. He's not a guy who you would look at him and say, oh, that's, that's a great defensive outfielder. Now, what's interesting is they've already got a pretty solid starting outfield, Acuna in left, Ender and Ciarte, who we love in center, and Nick Marcakis, who's having a fantastic year in right. So what they basically said is that they're going to make a platoon situation. And when you look into the numbers, this actually works out really well. Against lefties, it's going to be Duvall in left, Acuna in center, Marquecas in right and Inciarte on the bench. Against righties, Acuna in left, Inciarte in center, Marquecas in right, and Duval on the bench. And I hadn't really realized until I dug into this, Ender Inciarte cannot hit lefty pitching in any it's, way it's, whatsoever. It's ugly. It's, it's ugly. This year against lefties, he's hitting 207, 282, 234 slugging. I didn't think that was possible. Uh, 46 weighted runs created plus where 100 is average. First career, it's not quite so bad, but it's also not good. 316 on base, 320 slugging. He's basically league average against righty pitching both this year and for his career. And obviously his value is he's a phenomenal center fielder. So you take all of his left-handed pitching plate appearances away, which is, of course, what you want to do. And you essentially give them to Adam Duvall. Even this year, he's not having a good year. He's been a league average bat against lefties, uh, 333 on base, 435 slugging. That's fine. And then you know, look at the career. You know, It's not a huge split, but he's been a little bit above average against lefties. So you take away any single pitch that Inciarte would ever see against the lefty. You give it to Adam Duvall. You don't lose that much on defense, honestly. Like Acuna is a perfectly good center fielder. Uh, I actually really like this. I think we talked about Duvall like six weeks ago, saying like this is a guy who should be hitting better than he is. And then also Inciarte is a really nice piece coming off the bench because he's a a fast runner, good base runner. So he's someone you want to bring in as a pinch runner and you can keep him in the game and cycle in or out any of those three outfielders to get him into the game. I think the Braves might have had the my favorite trade deadline. We didn't really like prepare anything on Kevin Gosman to talk about here, but I kind of liked that because I always felt like Gosman was never going to reach his potential in Baltimore. It just seemed like that was the number one, I need a new place to be. I think he could actually be really good with the Braves. I'm a little skeptical. He's got a career low strikeout rate and a career high fifth this year. But again, maybe that maybe it's just like being in... I mean, the Orioles, as we know, have do not have a great reputation for developing pitchers, and Gossman has always been one of those guys who... Or Dylan Tate. <laughs> who, you mean Dylan Bundy? Uh, no, no, Dylan Tate. Oh, duh, because yeah. that's where he is now. He's got traded, yeah. Um, so um, maybe it's really just change of scenery where like a pitching coach can be like, well, actually, maybe actually you should be doing this, and like it unlocks something. So certainly, they, and also they didn't pay a huge price for it, and he's not a rental either, so I can see it makes it makes sense for the Braves to do it. Well, they actually paid not that much at all because they also took Darren O'Day's contract. Uh, Darren O'Day, I think, injured his hamstring and he's out for the year and he's under contract for next year. So by eating that money, they got to send back less. Co- and they also gave up international money, which the Orioles covet, and they can't spend anyway because they are under a penalty for the shenanigans last year with John Coppola. So it was actually a pretty uh, shrewd use of resources by the Braves. So we, we should take one second to credit the Orioles for accepting the inevitable. They like I know it's not fun to see them burn it to the studs, but they did a really good job. They imported a lot of good talent. I they added like eight of their top 30 prospects. They did a re- yeah, I thought they did a fantastic job, and they actually started acquiring international money, which they totally not wanted to do for like three years. And there are... Still a number of good international players left. Victor Victor Mesa is not eligible yet, but he's kind of like the big name out there. And right now the 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 Orioles have like three million more than any other team. So like if he becomes eligible this signing period, it seems particularly since Dan Duquette has basically said like 
we're changing our strategy. We're going to start investing internationally. And they've just started hoarding cash. It sort of seems like it's almost inevitable. Um, not to mention there's also Victor Victor's brother, Victor Jr., who's younger, but also a good prospect. And there's also Sandy Gaston, a right-handed pitcher, um, who is number 14 on Pipeline's list of the top uh, top 30 international prospects. So there's there's a bunch of big names still out there that I could see the um, Orioles going out and adding. And Victor Victor Mesa would instantly – I shouldn't say this um, – You'd instantly be one of their top like three prospects, possibly their number one prospect. I also enjoyed uh, Adam Jones, who was reportedly going to be traded to the Phillies, and he declined it. And it's his right to do so. He's a, a 10-5 guy, 10 years in the majors, five years with the same team. And he was asked about it, and he's basically like, I worked hard for this. This is my right. I don't need to explain it. And I'm like, cool. I totally respect that. He just Good bought you, man. He just like, bought Cal Ripken's house. He's comfortable. <laughs> he literally bought no, Cal Ripken's house. So like, okay, that's, hey, that's cool. Uh, he's been a star there for a long time. So good on the Orioles, good on the Braves, and... Yeah, I mean, also, by the way, come August 31st, because Adam Jones is almost certainly getting through waivers, It's he could change his mind and be like, actually, you know what? For a month, let's go. I'll go someplace. Like, There's going to be some interesting August trades. Uh, trades. You can still be on a team's postseason roster as long as you were traded before September 1st. That's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.